If you brought a copy of Scripture with you today, you can find Ruth chapter 4, the final, the final drama, the final stage in this great drama, rather, as we look at Ruth's Redeemer and ours this morning. Uh, somebody, I think even in this room here uh, this morning, uh, sent me something here a few days ago. They asked me the question, what kind of man was Boaz before he got married? I actually asked that question to a pastor friend of mine the other day, and he was just all over it. He, he came back, uh, let me think, alone, hardworking, integrity, faithful, respecter of women. And I came back and I said, no, silly. He was ruthless. I had to. I just had to. A couple of months after uh, my first wife passed away, there were a group of guys in the church I was in that thought it would do me some good to go out to Colorado and kill an elk. I don't know if they wanted to get my mind off of my sorrows or what, but uh, uh, so I was up in the mountains and I came to a I came to a stream with another friend. We, it was really like total wilderness. And we thought, well, let's not get lost here, okay? So I'm going to follow the stream up. You follow it down. He went down. I went up probably half a mile. I went, trudged my way up there and like six or eight feet. No, it was more like three or four inches. But anyway, made my way into the snow. And I got into this little meadow area uh, uh, up in the mountain. and just kind of nestled myself back into the trees and just waiting for that elk to show up. And, uh, and I thought, the thought hit me. I thought, I'm probably standing in a place no man has ever stood. And I looked down, and I saw an old Pepsi can. I'm not kidding you. That was right there. <laughs> Seriously. And, uh, and it was like God was saying, uh-uh. And even if you were, I've been there first. I made this place. There are many places in your life or mine where somebody hasn't already been. Can I get a witness to that? And more often than not, God has somebody in your life who can relate to you in whatever struggle you're going through and say to you, because they've been to the other side and say, it, it, it will be better. It gets better. And listen to me, even if that isn't true, God relates. Jesus knows. He understands. He's the one who's been there. We, listen, Christianity is the only faith that has a God who has suffered for us. And even before the cross, that's why we can go to him. He's a great redeemer, amen? As I was putting the finishing touches on this in the, uh, this morning, I had a couple things I was doing. Uh, Paul, our, our worship guy, uh, sent me a picture. He sent me this picture saying, hey, sounds like God wants you to preach on promises today. And I said, I'm in. I'm into it because we live off promises, don't we? If you've been with us in our story, Naomi and Ruth, they've been destitute. They, uh, they, they had to wonder if there was any hope for them. But now they're beginning to see the display of our providential God, the God who sees beforehand and marks out our path. Going before them, behind the scenes in chapter 1, they're destitute. In chapter 2, they're, they're back in Bethlehem, having been in Moab, and there they just, she, Ruth just happens providentially upon the field of Boaz, who is a near kinsman. We'll come back to that phrase we've been using throughout this series, again, in this message. Somebody close, a relative, Boaz takes note of her, just 
pours out blessings upon her. She goes back and she gets this enterprising mother-in-law, puts her brain together in chapter 3 and figures out a, a way in which she can put those two together. And you were, if you were with us last week, Ruth makes her way down to the threshing floor during the harvest, lays at the feet of Boaz, who wakes up startled. And she makes that proposal. He accepts. He's all in. And so I want you to know as we get into this last chapter, that no matter what you're going through, God is going before you. Because he sees everything long before you ever do. What you need to have is a redeemer. And not just a redeemer, a great redeemer. My concern is that many of you are, are pursuing lesser redeemers. And lesser redeemers can't redeem. We've been talking about the providence of God. Let me give you that definition. This is my own, but it, it, it works. Providence is God's working out the circumstances that bring about his sovereign will. That works. That's what, the, that's what the providence of God is. He's working out the circumstances in your life and in mine that will bring about his sovereign will. And if you recall the word providence, the root word is provide. Interestingly, the Latin word for provide, pro almost in every language means before, so before, and then the other part of provide is, is where we get our word video, and that means to see. So literally to provide from God's perspective, from his providential perspective, is the fact that he sees before. And, and I share that with you because I, I, when I was back to that hunting trip I was on, I couldn't see, you know, what, uh, what God was going to do. I, I wasn't ruthless, but I was Marilynless, and I couldn't get her off my mind. I had to conclude that God had, I'd only met her one time. I really didn't even know her. I just knew more of her. And yet she was totally on my heart, totally on my mind. I could not shake it. In fact, I, I said to somebody while I was up in the mountain, I feel like Boaz. And what did I mean by that? Well, if you were with us last week, we barely alluded to it because I wanted to give it to you here. The last, remember when she comes back, when she says to, uh, uh, that is when Ruth comes back and says, man, he poured out all this stuff, remember, 80 pounds of wheat? And as soon as Naomi sees this and realizes what's happened down there at the threshing floor, how Boaz had accepted Ruth's proposal, she says this, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. And that's what I meant when I said I feel like Boaz. And when I got back home, I gave Marilyn a call. The word redeemer is used throughout this book 22 times in one form or another. It's the Hebrew word goel, and it means a kinsman, some, a relative who's able to buy back. When we say we redeem something, we're buying it back, right? Which is what our great redeemer, the Lord Jesus, did for us, amen? When he died and rose again to buy us back. But this was the law, sometimes the law called the Leverite, the law of the Leverite marriage, okay? You've probably heard that. Again, it's sort of, what? Uh, the Old Testament had a couple of ways in which it guided people, both with land in the book of Leviticus and in a situation like this in the book of Deuteronomy. Let me show you what it says. If, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. So this is where it comes from. 
And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of the dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate. Now watch this. To the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of the husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall call him back, speak to him, and if he persists, saying, I don't, I don't want to do it. Then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull his sandal off his foot, spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called the house uh, in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. So there. <laughs> now, it's going to look a little bit different in this passage of Scripture, and I'll come back to that. But let's, re- let's reacquaint ourselves with Ruth chapter 4, okay? So here it is. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate. We talked about that. We'll come back to it again. Big area, alcoves, picture, picture benches, and maybe some, but mostly benches and maybe an alcove where lots of people could sit. And he says, uh, and he sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken, the one closer to Ruth, came by. And by the way, the word behold in the Hebrew is like, whoa, there he is. So the province of God at work here, okay? So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So the elders of the city said... Does you get a sense of how powerful Boaz must have been as a man? Hey, you sit down. Okay, you sit down. You sit down. You, you sit. Okay, sure enough. And now they're all sitting. And uh, he said, sit down. They sat down, verse 3. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it. And I come after you. As soon as he hears this, looks like a good deal. Who doesn't want more land? I'll do it. I'll redeem it. I'm in. Boaz is sort of setting him up. Verse 5. Then Boaz says, well, here's the deal. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, eh, can't do that. You can take my, uh, that'll impair my inheritance. That'll, that'll, that'll mess me up. Take my right of redemption for yourself. I can't redeem it. Verse 7. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel uh, concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. You can see this is a little different than the law in Deuteronomy. It just, they, it morphed a bit here. And this was the manner of testing in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I brought from the land of Naomi all that belonged to Limelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate, and here's the reason, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among the brothers and from the, the gate of his native place. You are witnesses today. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we're witnesses. 
May the Lord, and it's kind of a prayer, a blessing over, may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, uh, who together build up the house of Israel, may you act worthy, worthily in Ephrathah, be renowned in Bethlehem, and may your house be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So there's the scene, okay? So notice, first of all, he, he, says, he, he says, hey, he calls him friend. You see that in verse where he calls him friend. By the way, that's usually what I do when I don't remember your name. <laughs> you know, hey, 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 friend, how's it going? I once was standing there. I used to do all the howdies back by the door years ago and people were coming through. And somebody I'd met like a week earlier, I didn't remember her name. She goes, you don't remember my name, do you? I just looked at her. I go, nope. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. I mean, who does that? But he just... But he, we discovered in chapter 3, if you were with us last week, there was a nearer kinsman to Ruth than Boaz. Interestingly, he is never, ever in 3 or 4 given a name. Not that he doesn't have one, just not given one. In fact, when he says, hey, friend, the, the Hebrew uses a rhyming and, and, and yet kind of a meaningless phrase that one writer calls the equivalent of uh, Mr. So-and-so. That's what it's, so I'm going to call him What's-His-Face, because that's, that's the idea here. He just calls him What's-His-Face. The idea is the author clearly doesn't think all that highly of this dude. By the way, when I went calling on my wife, there was another dude trying to get into her life, and I got rid of him, too. I'll, that's another story. He's not to be named. I didn't kill him or anything. Jeez. So in chapter 3... There's a whole bunch of lying down. Eight times they were lying down. In chapter four, there's a lot of sitting down. Did you see that? Five times. Sit down, sit down, sit. They're all sitting down. That's what you need to picture in one of these alcoves within the gate of the city. Okay, it says there would be benches and alcoves, and this is where politics and business and news would be disseminated. By the way, chapter three, the proposal was made under cover of darkness. Chapter four, it's out there in the middle of everywhere. There's real contrast going on here. But again, what was the purpose of the gate? The gate was, remember, picture a literal gate, okay, that you come in. This was protected with a wall. And then there would be the city over here. But in between be this large area called the gate where the business and politics took place. And news was disseminated. All right? So, uh, uh, and, you know, today we get news instantly, even if not accurately, right? Uh, but... Back in the day, you got it through the gate. I don't know if anybody saw the movie during, in the middle of COVID called News of the World, Tom Hanks. It was a good, little, good movie. He played basically a post-Civil War, kind of a journalist, more like a reader. He would go into town downs and he would read the news of the world to the people in the town. Because it might be weeks or even months old, but they didn't know. That's the idea here. Uh, news was disseminated through the gate. And there's also a, a lot of witnesses and witnessing three times in verses 9 through 11 going on here. But I'm going to say this. Admittedly, there's a lot of unanswered questions that would easily put those of you who are just, you know, Bible nerds. I mean, I mean, you just like you get into the, all the nuances. <laughs> you know, and there's a whole bunch of questions here that you're not going to get answered. Like, uh, how is Naomi empty and yet an owner of land? And who was, who was this what's-his-face dude? And uh, 
And if Ruth was married to Malon, which verse 10 says she was, was he the firstborn? Because the firstborn would always get exactly half of the inheritance. The rest of it would chop up amongst the kids. So was, were there squatters in this decade that they were gone that had come and taken over the land? That, was it sold in some way? Was it How many years up to the Jubilee was there? If you know anything about Jubilee, at the year of Jubilee, everything went back to the original owners. How clo- we're not told any of those things, and there's good reason. The author clearly doesn't want you and me to get into the weeds. He wants us to see the great Redeemer. He wants us to see our hero, Boaz, who is a picture of the greater Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you got to love the way Boaz approaches this dude, right? First he mentions the prize, the land, then the perk, the lassie. Why? In order to test the dude's heart. Except that the lesser Redeemer, Mr. What's-His-Face, doesn't see Ruth as part of a prize. He sees her as part of the problem. To take the deal, What's-His-Face would have to take Naomi, marry Ruth, have a child who would not have his name and would get the land he's buying. What a deal! Ruth is an impediment to the lesser redeemer's real motivations, which basically is simply to acquire wealth. Furthermore, she's a threat to his own family, so he quickly reneges. We know virtually nothing about this nearer redeemer. And when you read why he goes back on his original pledge, I mean, let's be honest, it makes sense. It, you know, it's, it, it does make natural sense. How often, though, just a little pressure in your life or in mine will reveal our true character? Boaz, on the other hand, knows exactly what the cost is going to be. Last week, I I talked about those who do things, and this is referring to many of you, just because it's natural. You, You operate, you call yourself a Christian, but you operate in the flesh. Everything is natural to you, and you only do that which comes natural. Let me tell you something. God's ways are not our ways. They're not always natural. My ways are not your ways. Neither are my thoughts your thoughts, says the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. Have you ever read that? That means it's not always going to be natural. And God's math doesn't always work like your math and my math. And some of you only live off that kind of math. That's why your lives are so dull. They're so faithless. Because after all, I can get by and live the Christian life and take no risk. Boaz took the risk of becoming poor in order to make Naomi and Ruth rich, and rich they would become. But that's more next week. I want to spend the balance of our time on Boaz as a picture of our greater Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Boaz is a picture of our greater Redeemer, Jesus Christ. We'll put that up there for you here momentarily. And the first thing I want you to note is that what, it's actually a question. I've got three questions for you out of this thought. What Redeemer will you choose? What Redeemer will you choose? 
Mr. What's-His-Face was a redeemer. Let me, let me tell you, he was a redeemer. He's called that in the text. But he was a lesser redeemer. We're not told, but I think it's safe to say that had it turned out that he had gotten the land, Ruth, Naomi, the whole package, he would have turned out to be more of a reaper than a redeemer, extracting the fruit of the land while ignoring the fruit of the womb. And I would just say to you, if your hope, if your hope of redemption is in your finances, you talk about a lesser redeemer. If your hope is in your personal talent, that's a lesser redeemer. If your hope is in your spouse, that's a lesser redeemer. If your hope is in your boyfriend or your girlfriend, that's a lesser redeemer. If your hope is in politics, oh my goodness. <laughs> They're all lesser redeemers. But we choose those, and I watch some of you choose them all the time. I marvel over those who have allowed during the veil of COVID, and praise God, it's starting to come off, but I marvel at those among our very own who have allowed the corrupted politics and the various conspiracy theories of the last year to literally turn you upside down spiritually. In the words of James, my brethren, these things ought not to be. You need a greater redeemer than that. It could simply be revealing that you're pursuing lesser redeemers. And this might be the only thing some of you need to know today. Lesser redeemers never redeem. They never redeem. So why do you pursue them? You say, well, I got religion. You need a better redeemer than that. You need a redeemer, not religion. A great redeemer. You need Jesus Christ. Now, some of you think, wait a minute, didn't the redeemer choose Ruth? Yes. Just as God chose us before we chose him. Like love, we choose him because he first chose us. Can I get an amen? But we do choose. Ruth is passive in this passage of scripture, in this final scene, but she's already chosen. My question to you is, and the only question to Ruth was, was her Redeemer great enough to pull it off? And he was. Is your Redeemer big enough to pull it off, to take your sins away, to make you his child, to say to you, it'll get better. I've died for you. I've rose again for you. It will get better. Who's your Redeemer? What Redeemer will you choose? Secondly, whose shoes will you fill? Whose shoes will you fill? And what was going on here? I mean, we saw it in Deuteronomy. We see it here. Morphing has already been taking place. Not exactly the same. You know, no spitting in the face going on here. Wow, that would have been something. What was, this, what was the tradition of swapping shoes all about? And truth of the matter is, there's only one. It was, it was, it was only the lesser redeemer given his shoe over. There's no record of Boaz doing that. What's the sandal for anyway? What's, what do you do with the sandal? You put it on, right? Do you remember the posture? I didn't put the emphasis on this. The scripture does. How many times? One, two, three, four, five times. Sit, sit, sit. They're sitting around. If you picture in your mind, he's standing up, he's giving the sandal. Get it out of your head. They're sitting. 
They're talking. They're tra- there's a transaction going on. There's business happening here. And the lesser redeemer pulls off his sandal and hands it to Boaz. So you got Boaz, what's his face, and 10 other witnesses. The sandal, listen to this, the sandal symbolized the power of possession. By giving it to Boaz, he was relinquishing his right of power over the property and Naomi and Ruth. Here's my question. Did the near redeemer hand the sandal over to Boaz? And then did Boaz actually put it on? We're not told. But I'd like to think that's exactly what happened. The transaction was symbolic of filling somebody else's shoes. Now, he'd fill more than shoes. He'd fill lives and futures and destinies of Naomi and Ruth and carry on a lineage that would lead to the greatest redeemer, Jesus Christ. Now, here's a practical question for all of you this morning. Whose shoes are you willing to fill? If you want to be like Boaz. Whose shoes are you willing to fill? Just the other day, a pastor from the area saw me at a local place, establishment, and sought me out. We sat and talked. Good guy. Loves God. Very concerned about his church. It's been the same for 30 years. And by the same, I mean the same. If you took this church and you put their paperwork next to our paperwork, their doctrine next to our doctrine for one nuance or another nuance about the only difference, we could sign off easily. You could sign off on their belief system just as they could sign off on ours. And nothing has happened in that church. It's the same number of people for 30 years. And he was so discouraged. And I gave all of my heart to him to try to encourage him in his faith. Listen, Sailorville Church refuses to remain static. We will not remain static. But there are shoes to fill. If we are not going to remain static, there are, there are shoes to be filled, responsibilities to be taken, cell group leadership to be assumed, deaconships to be assumed, new interns, new church planners, new residents, new missionaries, because we will fill the shoes to increase the kingdom of God. We're not just going to sit here. Boy, nobody ever does that. What shoes are you going to fill? That's the question here. What shoes are you willing to fill? You say, well, that, that's taking a risk. You're darn right it's going to take a risk. Step up to the plate or step into the shoe. Better yet. I love what Amy Carmichael, the great missionary to India, to the orphans, said. When she prayed this prayer, she wrote it as a poem to God. She said, give me the love that leads the way. The faith that nothing can dismay. The hope, no disappointments tire. A passion that burns like fire. Let me not sink to be a clod. Make me your fuel, flame of God. Would that be your prayer?
Would that be your desire? Step in and fill the shoes. We refuse to be static. And one last question. What price will you pay? What price will you pay? This drama amplifies the great cost of the greater redeemer, Boaz. And here's the question I have for you. What if I told you that the way to true, lasting, joyful fulfillment was to go through emptiness? How would that sit with you? Some of you have lots of money in the bank, but you're just as empty and dry as anybody could be because you don't live by faith. You live by arithmetic. You're not willing to go forward, pay the price, take the risk, count the cost, and then go for it for the glory of God. What if I told you the way to fullness was to go through emptiness? How would that sit with you? To bring Marilyn into my life did come at a price. We were misunderstood. She was from a different church, albeit evangelical. But, you know, I'd already created enough monsters in the church I was pastoring that, ah! we were judged. We're taking on more children, more mouths to feed, bigger home, a lot bigger home, and more. But the truth is, Marilyn's losses were far greater than mine. She had to leave her church. She left her family. She left her friends. She left her town. She left her acreage. She said goodbye to it all. But what a return. I don't mean me. (laughs) Unless she would say that. But what providence. Sailorville. More family. More friends. More salvation. More, More churches spread. More missionaries send out. Glory to God. It's worth it. It's worth it. What price will you pay? For Boaz to marry Ruth meant he'd lose financially, not gain. In fact, he was buying property that wouldn't even be his. He'd have a kid that wouldn't even have his name. What a deal. Why? Why would he do this? Because that's what great redeemers do. That's why. Great redeemers don't give in order to get. Great redeemers give because it's in their nature to do so. For God so loved the world that he what? Say it. Gave. He gave. Because it's in his nature as a God of love to give. And what do you know? Because Jesus is God, it was true of him. That's why Paul said, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was what? Rich, yet for your sakes he became what? Poor. That through his poverty, what? You become rich. So be like Boaz and become more like Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for this great drama, this great story, and this great redeemer, Boaz. Such a picture of the greatest redeemer and the only one who could redeem us and buy us back, take our sins away. 
Friend, in this room and those watching online, if you would, in this state of prayer, if you would admit that your life, if I were to judge your life, because I could see what you do, where you go, what you participate in, what you spend your money on, what would I say is your redeemer? Would I conclude that you're pursuing lesser redeemers? Because some of you have done that all of your life. And, and that's the reason why you're truly not saved. Lesser redeemers can never redeem. Come to Jesus, the greater Boaz, the one who died for you and rose again. Trust him as your Savior today and Lord. And if you know him and you've been pursuing lesser redeemers, it's no wonder your life is dull and dark and distant. Repent today. And be willing to step into the shoes of some opportunity that will give glory to God and spread the gospel. Pay the price. Yes, it'll cost. But it'll be so worth it. Because you'll be more like Boaz. And thus more like Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Let's stand.